Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Happy Friday, all. It has been another whirlwind week, one highlight of which was a work dinner at my favorite Greek restaurant in San Francisco last night. It's just so nice to be out and about again and hearing about interesting ideas and trends deserving of more attention, which last night included the shadow war for space that's heating up. Of course, stepping back, there continues to be a lot of terribleness in the world, including in Ukraine, where more than 10 million people have now fled their homes because of the Russian invasion, according to UN data published earlier this week. In some ways, it feels far afield from the business of Strictly VC, but of course, some obvious questions center on how this impacts the world of venture capital. Already, a venture firm with ties to Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich has wiped clean its website and would probably like to disappear entirely until this wretched saga is over. Yuri Milner, one of the best-known Russian investors in the world and an early backer of Facebook, meanwhile gave an interview to Bloomberg earlier this week trying to distance himself from Russia after receiving early funding from Kremlin-connected sources that have since enabled him to build a $3.9 billion fortune. I cannot go back and change history, he reportedly told the outlet during several hours of Zoom interviews. I cannot change the fact that I was born in Russia. I cannot change the fact that we had some Russian funds. Meanwhile, the information reported earlier today that Sequoia Capital's China affiliate is currently in the market for $8 billion that it wants to put to work across four funds. It's hard to see institutional investors saying no to Sequoia, whose bets include TikTok parent ByteDance and the fast fashion retailer Shine both of which are reportedly valued in the many tens of billions of dollars. Still, with China's ongoing support of Russia, there have surely been better times to raise a fund in China, and we wonder if it's the case that Sequoia can't simply snap its fingers right now and collect all the commitments it might like. Surely we'll find out soon enough. In any case, with so much going on, we thought it would make sense to check in with Jim Breyer, a global investor if ever there was one. Breyer long led Excel, the Silicon Valley firm, peeling off in 2013 to hang his own shingle. And his firm, Breyer Capital, has invested many millions of dollars in primarily deep tech companies, primarily in the U.S. and China, ever since. Indeed, Breyer, who previously sat on the boards of Walmart, Facebook, and Harvard Corporation, sits today on the boards of Blackstone and IDG Capital in Beijing, and very much has a vested interest in what's happening in Ukraine. We talked with Breyer about the war. We also talked about life in Austin and why he's so bullish on something called quantum sensing, even while he thinks actual quantum computers are at least four or five years away. More from that chat in a minute. But first, some news. In an article in today's Wall Street Journal, author Corey Drybush tries to determine what it will take for the IPO market to open up again. Only 22 companies have gone public this year for a combined $2.3 billion in capital raised versus 79 companies and $36 billion in capital raised for the same period last year. Obviously, the Ukraine war has thrown a wrench into many companies' IPO plans, but Craig McCracken, co-head of Equity Capital Markets at Wells Fargo, believes that the markets are looking for profitability above all else. Before, we had growth at all costs, he told the journal. Now, people are looking for safer companies. 
That's not exactly great news for late-stage VC firms, many of which have poured hundreds of millions of dollars into unprofitable unicorn companies in the hope of taking these companies out at multi-billion dollar valuations. Indeed, the total amount of money VC firms manage grew to a record $128 billion in 2021, a 47% increase over 2020. In response to market conditions, Instacart announced yesterday that it had cut its valuation by approximately 38%. And according to David Bauer, head of equity capital markets at KKR, public investors will be keenly watching whether other tech companies will follow suit. The tech space will be its own animal in terms of which companies will be willing to do a down round into an IPO, he said. Up next, our interview with Jim Breyer of Breyer Capital. But first, a word from our sponsor. Did you know that Monday.com grew ARR by 6x since 2019, whereas Atlassian only doubled? You can dig into more software insights directly with Dalupa, one of the most exciting investment data platforms for growth equity. Keep up with trends across the top 100 public software companies, including recent IPOs and SPACs across every metric, ARR, profit, retention, magic number, and more. For Delupa's free deep dive data across top software companies, visit delupa.com slash strictlyvc. That's D-A-L-O-O-P-A dot com slash strictlyvc. And now our interview with Jim Breyer of Breyer Capital, who recently talked with us from the New York headquarters of Blackstone, the private equity giant on whose board Breyer sits. It's great to reconnect. I know, absolutely. It's been too long. I don't know if you remember, but we sat down together backstage, I guess, at one of the, what are they called, Web Summit events in Lisbon. But I think that was maybe like three or four years ago. I remember well, absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you again for making time for this. So, Jim, I want to talk to you about a variety of things, but of course, I want to start off with Austin. I'm wondering what drove the decision, and I'm not sure even when you made the move. Was this in 2020? Was it during the height of the pandemic, or were you there earlier than that? I was there earlier. So the history is pretty simple. I was on the Dell board for many years. So I was coming and going through Austin for Dell and frankly, just fell in love with the city during those Dell years and knew that one day I would open an office in Austin and thought that there was a very high likelihood I would move at some point. So two and a half years ago, pre-pandemic, I started looking for office space, meeting with Michael and Susan Dell and others in the community. And it was a wonderful decision. So it was very simple. Austin, more than almost any city in the country, encourages a culture of interdisciplinary collaboration. And because the city has catered to so many types of professionals, not just technologists, but artists, musicians, entrepreneurs, doctors, professors, all associated with University of Texas, there is a collaborative spirit that I think is really unique. Austin will never have, in my humble view, the deep technology underpinnings of Silicon Valley. And in fact, there are a number of new deals that are still in stealth mode in Silicon Valley in and around quantum technologies that Briar Capital has invested in, more to come over the next several weeks in terms of announcing what those look like. 
But Austin just continues to be an area of great passion for me in terms of the entrepreneurs, the interactivity. And of course, Austin continues to attract young, brilliant entrepreneurs from around the country and in many cases from around the world. It's probably a terribly kept secret that I just don't know the answer to, but what do entrepreneurs there tend to specialize in? I feel like I see a lot of logistics startups announcing funding there, fintech startups. Well, for sure, there are strong fintech startups. Briar Capital has uh, 20 both for-profit and non-profit investments in Austin. There are several that have grown into very significant market capitalizations of over a billion dollars. WorkRise, Everly Well, Zen Business are three examples of companies that in their own way are all doing extraordinarily well. Again, market capitalizations of over a billion dollars with very strong growth. We've been very active in investing in crypto technologies in 2013. I did Series A investments in Circle and Coinbase through my partners with IDG. And since that time, 15 more investments in the crypto space. And in Austin, there's a very successful crypto company called Multicoin Capital, And that's been, again, a very positive, strong Briar Capital investment. I think what we find in the Austin ecosystem is a lot of companies focused on managing data. These are spin-outs from Dell and others. Data.world is one example of a company doing groundbreaking work in managing data for small, medium, and large enterprises. Zen Business is focused on small business technologies where they can get a business up and running on the web very quickly and provide very excellent accounting services. There are companies like Homeward that are doing very well. And so it's really a mix of different types of companies where the entrepreneurs really have very diverse backgrounds. There are a number of entrepreneurs in Austin, who have been in Austin for a decade or two, a number of entrepreneurs came to Austin because of the University of Texas at Austin. And that is, again, one of the real attractions of Austin. You have a world-class university, really interesting students, professors, postdocs, and a startup medical school, Dell Medical School that Michael and Susan started at University of Texas eight years ago. And what the Dell Medical School is doing is collaborating very deeply across the University of Texas campus. And that is an area of great passion and interest for me. The intersection of computation and medicine is an area where I've made 10 investments over the last five years largely spin-outs of some of our best hospitals and cancer centers, such as UCSF, Memorial Sloan Kettering, Dell Medical School, and marrying computation, in some cases, physics, chemistry, the top professors with the top medical professors and faculty has been an area of great focus. Finally, I will say that 
Texas as a state has significant funds for cancer research and medical research. And MD Anderson, of course, is one of the great academic centers and medical centers in the world. And MD Anderson faculty are collaborating more and more with the University of Texas at Austin faculty. The partnerships continue to increase. And that's an area of, again, great investment interest for me as I look at speaking to students and faculty about the great opportunities in venture capital and entrepreneurship over the next decade. Those companies that sit at the intersection of medicine and computation offer, I think, absolutely phenomenal opportunities to do good and to build very significant market capitalizations. The outgoing lead at Memorial Sloan Kettering, the president, when I spun out a technology company called Page AI five years ago, was very skeptical. And a number of the faculty at Memorial Sloan Kettering and the doctors were very skeptical about this intersection of computation and medicine. When I spoke to Craig, the president at Memorial Sloan Kettering two weeks ago, after he announced that he will be departing, he was very gracious. And he said, Jim, this is a case where you are absolutely right. And if I have to think about the future of Memorial Sloan Kettering in 2030, one third of our professionals will be in the area of computation. Today, it's about five or 10%. So these hospitals that sit at the leading edge of cancer research and cardiology, there's an explosion of opportunity. And that's not just in Austin, of course, that's in the Bay Area, in New York and Boston, where life sciences and computation will continue, I think, to offer really remarkable opportunities for entrepreneurs. Jim, I think we'd like to drill down on some of these investment themes like medicine and computational data, but I'm just curious about what the startup scene is like in Austin, because as I remember it, Austin Ventures was kind of the only shop in town for a long time. Are you seeing now that there are a lot of other VCs that are cropping up besides Briar Capital? Well, there is a really strong, small, relative to the Bay Area, of course, venture capital community. I stay in touch with many of the former partners of Austin Ventures. They are great friends. <laughs> I start with that over the last several years. Joe Aragona, Bill Wood, there are just wonderful alumni from Austin Ventures. And in many cases, they are making angel investments in companies there are excellent firms like Live Oak and others that are doing really excellent work. There's the Capital Factory and Josh Baer, who does superb work in seed and startup investing. But I also find that even though the community of venture capital is not necessarily extremely large, the entrepreneurs, in many cases, are very active as angel investors. And so many of the investments that Briar Capital has made is early stage with entrepreneurs in the current portfolio, such as Brett Hurt and others, John Berkowitz at Ojo Labs, a prime example. And so that sense of community is really interesting because the entrepreneurs are backing other entrepreneurs and the angel investment community in Austin is remarkable. I should also say that there are a number of family offices in Austin, starting, of course, the most visible is the Michael and Susan Dell family office. I've invested in 
over a half dozen deals with Michael, and they bring enormous value, as you would expect. The family offices in Dallas are also very active. So a co-board member for many years at Dell, Ross Perot Jr., is a superb early stage technology investor and is investing very significantly, not only in Dallas, but in the Austin community as well. And every time Ross and his partner, Tom Luce, who was also a Dell board member, come to Austin, we get together, brainstorm. So it's a community where the family offices play a much more pivotal role in investing than one would find in other parts of the country. And the venture capital community does continue to grow. Joe Lonsdale, another individual who moved to Austin, has been a co-investor and friend over the last two years. And we've made a number of investments together, including a number of what we think are really interesting stealth investments. So small but passionate investment community growing significantly, of course, but very collaborative, which is great fun. And of course, the venture capital community going back many years was extraordinarily collaborative. And some of my best friends in the world are Jeff Yang of Redpoint and Doug Leone, who I speak to every week at Sequoia. So still, there's tremendous collaboration in the venture capital community, which is one of the reasons I've loved it for so long. Jim, you were always an independent thinker, but do you think that being somewhat removed from Silicon Valley has changed your perspective on fundraising in any way? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of talk about it being an echo chamber. At the same time, you were always sort of a very international person, so I'm not sure if moving your office has made a difference. I don't think it's made that much of a difference. It's a wonderful question because I do think that I've been very lucky. I started the Chinese venture funds, the IDG Axel funds with my now long-term partners in 2005. And in 2016, the IDG funds became the IDG Briar funds. So we have 120 professionals on the ground in China. In London in 2001, I recruited my section mate from business school, Kevin Camoli, and Kevin started Axel Europe in 2001. So I've always been very lucky about global offices, and those businesses are ones where, again, I'm passionate, and Briar Capital invests in fintech worldwide, including Latin America, Credit Gusto in Mexico. Two years ago, I made my first fintech investment in Athens, and we sold that company, Viva Wallet, earlier this year to JP Morgan. I believe that global investing is only accelerating, and Austin is a wonderful hub. But again, I so admire what Sequoia Capital and others have done in terms of the international investing. And again, I'm, I'm very fortunate because we collaborate so often, Briar Capital and Sequoia, Doug Leone, Jim Getz, and others. So we'll compete like crazy in the morning around a new investment. And that new investment may be in China, Europe, Silicon Valley, or elsewhere in the United States. So there's strong competition, but great collaboration and trust. And that is one of the I think, hallmarks of the venture capital community that I continue to love. Being in Austin, though, certainly is in some ways a step removed from the depth of Silicon Valley. 
the most passionate entrepreneurs with deep tech continue to be in Silicon Valley. And some of the artificial intelligence platform companies in and around Stanford, quantum technology investments, not computing, but quantum technologies around quantum sensing and other emerging areas that I'm really excited about, soon to be announced in a couple of the cases. Those are all very deep around the Stanford ecosystem. And again, the mega cap tech companies are best in world when it comes to artificial intelligence. Facebook, Google, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon have inordinate, just inordinate talent when it comes to a lot of the deep technologies, and that will simply not change. In some cases, though, I do see some of those entrepreneurs deciding that they're interested in joining the Google or Facebook offices or Apple offices, Tesla in Austin. And these are the entrepreneurs of the future. When they start to hit their early 30s and they want to do something on their own, that's typically the kind of background that we love to intersect. Yeah, no, I know everybody's buying up more and more real estate there. And I was thinking when you were talking about the seed stage scene, how that will only become more vibrant as more people from Facebook, Amazon, Tesla move there and then eventually spin off and do their own things. You mentioned China, which I did also want to talk to you about, Jim, and Doug Leone, who I had the pleasure of sitting down with a few years ago at a TechCrunch Disrupt event. When we sat down, so this was the fall of 2018, things were very different. We were really talking about how brilliant Sequoia's strategy had been. It went there, it stayed where a lot of venture firms went there 15, 17 years ago and turned around and left. But of course, things seem to have changed. Even then, when we sat down, the market wasn't fully open. Companies were being asked to make a lot of concessions, including censoring their content. Of course, as an investor, you could still make a lot of money on China's founders and startups, if not American companies heading there anymore. But that seemed to change last year, too, when the government began imposing these regulations that slowed down its own homegrown teams. I'm just wondering, how do you think about the evolving landscape there? <laughs> it's a wonderful question. Doug and I talk about it often, for sure. The last 18 to 24 months in China has been challenging in a number of ways cross-border investments and partnerships about two years ago completely stopped. And so for many years, there was strong cross-border investing, of course. What has happened is that China, from a technology standpoint, and again, my partners and I were the Series A investors in Baidu and Tencent. We were very fortunate the Tencent network and Baidu network in China is extraordinary with a number of entrepreneurs who have come out of those companies, but now they're focused on the Chinese domestic market. And so if you look at what the change has been, it is largely a focus on the Chinese market. And there are certain areas like sustainability and healthcare and medicine that I am personally passionate about and hopeful that in the future, <laughs> we can get back to cooperating at the United States and China level in areas like sustainability and healthcare and medicine. But for sure, it has become a complex environment. And again, the investments that the IDG team is making are in areas like sustainability, healthcare, medicine, and focused on domestic markets, by and large. That's been a very significant change. I'm involved with the Tsinghua 
School of Economics and Management Advisory Board, which is a wonderful who's who list of American executives. And when I think of tremendous opportunities going forward, so many of them will emanate from our great universities in the U.S. and around the world. In fact, I'm speaking later today with a superb group of professors out of Oxford and Cambridge who are focused in the area of quantum. And many of these next generation opportunities in artificial intelligence and in quantum will emanate from 30 to 40 of the world's great universities. Jim, as you said, you're involved with this very prestigious university. IDG has long been investing there, your association with them through Excel and with Briar. Obviously, you have to separate the founding teams and the entrepreneurs from the government. But I have to wonder what you thought when Jack Ma went missing, and I put that in quotes, in November <laughs> of 2020 after he criticized the financial system as he was preparing to launch Ant Group's IPO. I was stunned. And I've known Jack for many years. Jack, again, an extraordinary talent. And I was completely surprised. Simple as that. And I think that if anything, we're seeing the importance of companies adhering to, call it a middle of the road politically. And and that's true in, in many parts of the world that prevented, call it mutual cooperation from occurring the way I think in some cases we were on a path to mutually cooperate. I can't predict the future of politics in the US, Europe, the Middle East, China, but it for sure has become a more important factor in terms of how one thinks about global investing. And my view, again, there are areas that are so important for all of us, sustainability, medicine, healthcare, and that's where I see areas of real cooperation. And I'm optimistic that we will find more and more ways to cooperate around the world. But for sure, it's extraordinarily challenging right now. And again, I'm such a believer in some of these areas where artificial intelligence and the quantum technologies, for instance, can make a huge impact in medicine and healthcare. And the US leads the way. And so the 20 investments I've made in medicine, computation, healthcare in the U.S. are ones that I think have, in many cases, chances not only to be leaders in the U.S., but to really provide second opinions and great medical services to patients and doctors and hospitals where they don't have the number of wonderfully trained physicians and nurses that we have in the U.S. So whether it's India, second opinions for Chinese patients, interactions in Europe, these opportunities, I think, have tremendous global opportunity once we get it right in the United States. The last question on this, Jim, just because it's happening right now, this Ukrainian war, does that change the calculation for you, given that China is obviously friendly with Russia and Russia is very unpopular right now? Well, of course. And I think there are a number of challenges. Within China, many of the investments, the vast majority over the last 18 to 24 months that we've made are in the area of healthcare, medicine, and sustainability. Those themes are global and fundamentally important. And that will continue to be the set of themes for the Chinese investments. In the US, Briar Capital has, for the last six years, gone very deep and very big in artificial intelligence and now in quantum technologies. And my belief is the U.S. is the world leader and will only accelerate its lead 
in areas in and around artificial intelligence and quantum technologies. Europe has become a big challenge, of course, with all that's going on with the huge slowdown in a number of the European economies. As I mentioned, there are a number of fintech investments I've made in Europe. I see growth there, but significant slowing of what the revenue growth will be this year and next due to a lot of what we're currently all experiencing firsthand with the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. You may remember, but my parents were born and raised in Hungary in 56. They were students in Budapest. The Russian tanks entered Budapest. They left, spent six months in Vienna at the University of Vienna. And then my mom and dad came to the United States in 1957. And so one, I'm a a huge believer in immigrants being phenomenal entrepreneurs and leaders, and a huge believer that that is best accomplished in the United States of any area in the world. And so my mom and dad are not with us anymore, but they had very strong views about the U.S. being truly remarkable and a leader when it came to entrepreneurship. And obviously, they moved here at the height, well, not the height of the Cold War, but during the Cold War, and left Hungary when the Russian tanks went in in 56, when there was the student uprising, which they were both part of. Jim, you've talked about AI and quantum. I I see one of your bets is a a company called Iterative Scopes, which says that software can help spot the signs of colorectal cancer. I love that you're investing in these important companies that are solving real needs. (laughs) Of course, I have to ask you what you make of this whole Web3 discussion. And I know that you're interested in blockchain, especially as it helps healthcare companies keep track of patient data. Can you comment on whether you think that we are about to see a new, more democratic internet? I interviewed Sarah Tavel. I don't know if you've ever met her of Benchmark recently. And her view was that some of the biggest Web3 companies that we're seeing today are really centralized. They're just built on decentralized infrastructure. But I just wonder if that means that Web3 is more evolutionary than revolutionary as it's been painted. I think we'll see both, just as we saw with Web 2.0 and the Web 1.0 back in 1994 and 95. So for sure, the talent at our mega cap leaders is extraordinary. And I consider myself very lucky that I know and work with Satya at Microsoft, with Tim Cook closely, of course, the Facebook team, Mark, Cheryl, Chris Cox, and, and others. Larry, Sergey, Ruth Peratt at Alphabet, who also sits on the board of Blackstone. Very fortunate to work with those senior executives. The talent at the very biggest and best technology companies today is extraordinary. I compete with them like crazy when we're looking at the very best AI talent out of Stanford and MIT and Harvard. They're recruiting, they're paying huge dollars. My pitch is that talent should be joining startups, that the Web3 really will present some fascinating new opportunities. But I think it'll be a mixture, as it often is, of four or five of the leading companies today continuing to build great presence. And at the same time, there will be a number of the younger companies that are being formed or have been formed that have the opportunity when we speak again in 2030 to be world leaders. And part of that is the decentralized nature of Web 3.0. Many of the blockchain companies I've invested in 
absolutely seeing that firsthand, whether it's Circle with the US dollar coin, lucky to be an investor in Binance. And obviously, that is a worldwide decentralized set of platforms and technologies. The very best crypto developers are all over the world. One thing that has, of course, come out of COVID worldwide is that many of the very best software developers want to work from home or work from locations where they're really passionate, whether it's Jackson Hole, whether it's Austin, Texas, Boulder, Colorado. There are now talented developers that don't feel they need to be in and around Palo Alto and Cupertino. And I think that's very healthy and the very best companies are trying to integrate that. I will also say Web 3.0, when I think about it, there's, of course, what Meta and Facebook is doing. Oculus is a very underrated platform today, and we'll only see more and more fascinating companies building applications in and around Oculus. Obviously, Microsoft, Sony, Google will all have technology platforms around VR and AR. What an opportunity for entrepreneurs to get in on the ground floor and build new companies on top of those platforms. At the same time, as an investor in Epic Games and Fortnite, Niantic in San Francisco, these are really Web 3.0 gaming companies in terms of how they're built, what they're doing. And so I'm really excited about what all of that means in certain areas like gaming, entertainment, and over time in areas in and around the blockchain as well. But never, ever writing off what Microsoft or Alphabet, Meta, these are extraordinary companies, Apple, and they have extraordinary CEOs and leadership. So I'm not seeing a changing of the guard, if you will. I just see more new entrants and opportunities for startups. And in many cases, we're actively partnering with companies like Microsoft in the area of medicine in particular. I mentioned a number of the AI and medical deals where I'm personally involved, Page AI and others. And Microsoft in particular has been extraordinarily proactive in building out a really deep and talented group of leaders in the area of health tech. And they're very proactive. They've been superb partners. And we'll continue to see a lot of co-investing between Briar Capital and Microsoft in the area of health tech. Jim, I think we've kept you too long, but I did want to ask one last question about quantum computers, which you've talked about quite a bit. We just saw one of the first companies to go public, Rigetti Computing, you probably noticed, went public through us back. You're having this discussion later today with these academics. Has there been any kind of a tipping point? Is this the time now for quantum computing to accelerate in some way? Well, my take is this. The investment thesis is we are still four to five years away from true quantum computing and understanding who the winners are in quantum computing. So the best chipsets today in the world of, of quantum are at Google and Alphabet. The big mega cap companies have the opportunity to develop internally as well as addition. I have personally visited with 14 quantum computer companies and there are a number of really fascinating deep technologies where it's still uncertain for which applications 
the big winners and the deepest technologies may exist. It's just very early. That being said, there are tremendous national security opportunities for the quantum companies. And that's where a lot of the business is right now, the three-letter agencies, Department of Defense, etc. But what I'm really excited about today from an investment standpoint is not necessarily the big super capital intensive quantum computers. I continue to deeply evaluate the risk reward in that area, but very interested in areas like quantum sensing. And to describe that just very briefly, think of a very high powered thousand X like microscope that can be applied to medicine. And there are quantum sensing technologies today that are being piloted at some of our great hospitals in the United States that I think will revolutionize areas such as cardiology. Obviously, drug discovery is incredibly computing intensive. And the one zero classic computing model doesn't lend itself to the kind of depth of computation needed in areas like drug discovery. So there are a couple companies like Soli Therapeutics, a spin out that Doug Leone and I did out of UCSF, where again, quantum sensing and technologies will play a very pivotal role over the next couple of years in helping companies discover new efficacious drugs, as well as the sensing opportunity where I think we'll be able to do a much better job in cardiology. Cardiology is a field that has really not seen much innovation in 20 years. And then finally, there are companies like Page AI focused on breast and prostate cancer, where it's depth of artificial intelligence today running on computing, but starting to experiment in cases with their software running on quantum computers, again, where there are so many images that need to be analyzed, whether it's breast or prostate cancer, and those images and the kind of algorithms needed to analyze those images to help patients and doctors make much better earlier decisions and diagnoses in areas like breast and prostate cancer, quantum computing platforms will play a role. But again, we don't need to wait for the massive quantum computers to arrive. There are quantum technologies where they're not at the breakout point of where quantum computing will be four or five years from now but are making a very big difference in some of the areas that I've discussed that are really exciting. And more to come, I've been working with some of the mega cap technology companies about potentially spinning out small technology teams in the area of quantum and more news to come over the next several weeks. Jim, this is a little bit off the beaten track as far as questions go, but are there any applications for quantum with regard to blockchain? Huge. It's not off the beaten track at all, Alex. It's a, a very perceptive question. Again, the blockchain infrastructure, computing, as we know, it really challenges today what current computing architectures look like. And again, because it's so distributed, the promise of distributed computing in many ways does help blockchain and blockchain development. But for sure, what you'll see with the quantum technologies is a real acceleration around blockchain and crypto and a lot of the technologies that are really important. I will also say there is today an enormous opportunity around what quantum will do 
for security. And we need to get our arms around it because quantum will make post-RSA security will pose significant risks to the current security infrastructures that we have at hospitals and governments and obviously the three-letter agencies, education institutions, and the very best organizations need to start thinking about what the quantum technologies will mean for security and begin to implement programs where they are quantum ready. It's not a question of if, it's only a question of when the quantum technologies become very fundamental to security. And you'll continue to see, as we're seeing today, the mega cap companies and others buying security companies, and in some cases, investing significantly in quantum to be ready for security systems, not only of those of critical national importance, but hospital data, patient data, educational data. Those will all need to be secured in very different ways in the post-RSA world of security. And quantum is something where it's not going to be a nice to have. It's going to be an absolutely necessary part of keeping data and systems secure. It's all fascinating. Thank you for the overview. And please do keep us in touch when you are ready to make these announcements about these mega cap companies and these related <laughs> spinoffs. As somebody who's not that far away anymore from her golden years, too, I'm happy to hear that there are probably lots of advancements right around the corner. Jim, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you so, so much. Really a treat to get to talk to you. Well, Connie and Alex, what a pleasure to reconnect. And again, I love the fact that in venture capital, we can never step back and just say everything's been invented. In fact, at Davos three years ago, I was on a panel where I was the one talking about acceleration of innovation. And there were a couple of professors who said everything important has been invented. And nothing, of course, could be farther from the truth. So I like being on those discussions. And again, wonderful to connect with the two of you. and. Real pleasure. And let's stay close over the next several months as I think some really important announcements in and around quantum will occur. Absolutely. I'd love that. And I'm very glad that you're as engaged as ever. <laughs> I think that's probably good <laughs> I for love everyone. what I do. Yeah. Thanks great, so, much. Thank you so much. What a pleasure. Thanks very much for listening, everybody. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you here next week.